Hi everyone and welcome to Beyond the Grid, presented by the new Bose noise cancelling headphones 700. It's Tom Clarkson here and I'm trying to think how best to describe this week's guest. When I asked him to introduce the podcast himself, as I do with all of our guests, he told me that was my job. So here I am trying to think up a description that does the man justice. To many people, he's the godfather of Formula One. He transformed the sport from being the indulgence of rich amateurs in the 50s into the global phenomenon that it is today, watched by hundreds of millions of people on television. I'm talking, of course, about the incomparable Bernie Eccleston. Bernie's career in Formula One has been a long one. Believe it or not, he actually tried to qualify for a couple of Grand Prix in 1958, before then transferring his energies into driver management. First, he worked with British racer Stuart Lewis Evans, and then with 1970 world champion Jochen Rindt. But tragically, both men would die after accidents behind the wheel. But Bernie's love affair with racing continued. He eventually bought the Brabham team in 1972 and led them to world championship glory. And it was during this period that his career went stratospheric. Before long, he was negotiating with race promoters on behalf of the teams. And a stupidly short amount of time later, he was running the sport in its entirety, something he did for 40 years until it was bought by Liberty Media in 2017. Bernie ruled F1 with a rod of iron. There were many controversies along the way, and whether you agreed or disagreed with him, one thing was unequivocal. He kept everyone on their toes. Now in his 90th year, Bernie's in rude health, and we caught up recently in London after he'd returned from a prolonged stay on his coffee farm in Brazil. I won't lie to you, he isn't always the easiest to extract information from, but he's always great company, and you never know what he's going to say next. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Bernie, welcome to Beyond the Grid. It's lovely to have you on the show. Um, we're at Prince's Gate in London, an address that for so long was the global HQ of Formula One. What goes on in here now? Who passes through these doors? We don't have any passes for anything. <laughs> we're completely open and free. I just do all sorts of things now. Things that I would have probably never dreamt of doing before because... I'm spending a lot of time that's not producing too much. But I'm trying to help people. A lot of people come and ask me different things. What do I think of this? What would I do if I was them? And those sort of things. I try and help people whenever I can. Would you say you're enjoying life after Formula One? Um, I'm enjoying, enjoying myself doing all the things that perhaps... I should have spent more time doing a few years ago and didn't bother with. You know, I don't sort of, I, I used to be very disciplined with myself and make sure that I was doing every single thing that I had to do and tick boxes to make sure I did. And nowadays I don't do that. I do what I think I'd be happy doing. Bernie, can you give us any examples of what you're doing now? People would love to know. Well, I've been traveling a lot. You know, we have a a coffee farm in Brazil, which takes a little bit of looking after. I've got building projects in Switzerland, where basically I'm spending a bit more time now than I used to. I mean, I would have spent more time there anyway, but it wasn't very practical when I was sort of looking after things in Formula One. I mean, this is the base of Formula One England. Where most of the teams are, most of the promoters know where we are pop in and see me and things like that. Bernie, tell us a little bit about the coffee farm in Brazil. Can we buy the coffee in England, for example? Yep. Where, where can we, what's it called? C Celebrity Coffee. Uh -huh. They stock it in Partridge's, a shop in the King's Road, and other different places. My wife looks after this much more than me. I look after the more practical side. Are you enjoying life as a farmer? Is that yeah, what we call yeah, it? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. We have about 800 cattle cows and some horses and things so it's what breed of cattle have you got over there the typical brazilian unfortunately they, d they don't produce milk they're there for people to take away and kill and sell the meat mm. i've said all of, that's why we got as many cattle now from the, the last sort of five or six years because they won't send them away to be killed i said if they're going to die they can die here mm. they're not dying in the slaughterhouse so i won't sell them and how much time are you spending over there in Brazil? Probably 
I suppose, in total, a couple of months here. So what about Formula One? Do, do you keep in touch with Formula One in terms of what's happening on track? How closely do you follow it now? Well, I'm still friends and close to a lot of the teams and the promoters. So that's basically now still the biggest part of my time. That's what I do. And you know you're saying people ring you up for advice. Is that current Formula yeah. One people? It, it, nothing this morning, but late yesterday, yes. <laughs> oh, God, pray tell. Now, do you miss running Formula One, Bernie? Do you miss the adrenaline? Do you miss the deals? Do you miss the profile? No, I, I suppose what I really miss is discovering new countries that where we could put Formula One, where they were happy with it and we were happy with whatever business we could do there. Would you say Malaysia was the first one of those back in 1999, of the new countries? Well, I mean, I've been trying in China for a long time before that, so long. Singapore, before we got that race off the deck, I've been messing around there for 25 years. What was the catalyst to getting that deal over the line? No, I knew Mr. Ong, the, the guy that sort of runs things there now, and because of his friendship with the, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, I went to see him, and that's what happened. We decided that Singapore should have a Formula One race. Was it always going to be a night race? No. Whose idea was that? Mine, unfortunately. It cost them a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> now, Bernie, how do you reflect on your time in charge of Formula One? Obviously, you brought it to new territories, which you've just talked about, but when you look at it as a whole, how do you mm. look back at it? Well, I don't particularly, I don't understand the question, really. Are you proud of what you achieved? No. I was doing a job. <laughs> Simple. Well, when you look at the sport now, is it what you envisaged 40 years ago? When you first, let's say, first bought Brabham in 1972 and you were thinking, okay, I'm now a team owner, where's the sport going? Is this what you envisaged back then? No, not what, at all. What did you see back then? I think um, sort of we just continued looking. I looked for improvements that I thought it could be made and try to make them. So there was no plans. Sort of reacting in a way to yeah, what was I going on. Yeah, I never had any plans to do anything. When opportunities arose, if I thought they were going to be good, that's what I grabbed hold of them and tried to do something about it. And was TV clearly the main thing for you? Most important. Sure was. Because as a team owner, was it frustrating that there wasn't more TV, more cohesive TV, if you like? Because it was all race by race back then, wasn't it? Used to, yeah, exactly right. I mean, the broadcasters could do what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it, which I thought wasn't the, really the best way for us, which it obviously wasn't. So, I mean, it was all dealt with by EBU in, in Europe those days. And they were the ones that really controlled things. They, they did a first-class job, never had any problems, except they didn't want to be told what they should do. In fact, they told me, I said, well, we're going to have to do something about it. And they said, well, you won't be able to because you're finishing and have no broadcast at all. I said, really? They said, yeah. And they said, you know, you should know this because you're in England and the BBC will never, ever, ever do what you're asking them to do. I said, well, we'll have to see. How did those negotiations with the BBC go? They were the first people to do it, actually. Because <laughs> they could see it was the best thing for them. What do you think has been Formula One's magic ingredient that's made it such a global phenomenon? I think Ferrari's got a lot to do with making Formula One what it is today. You know, they were there from the start. It's a magic name. You know, you ask anybody about motor racing and they will obviously include Ferrari as being the people. And they were always central to yeah, exactly all right. the deals you were doing. And Well, I kept closely in touch with Mr. Ferrari in the old days. Well, it was quite, it wasn't difficult and it wasn't easy. He didn't speak any English and I didn't speak any Italian. So we always had to have Mr. somebody with us. 
sort of helping a little bit. But he was very, very positive and very helpful. What kind of a man was he? Really, really, really nice guy. I mean, when we had the so-called war with the manufacturers, supposed to be, you know, and he was outwardly sort of against me or whatever, but we were very close, and I didn't care what he said, and he didn't care what I said. You know. Do you think you were cut from the same cloth? Do you think you were quite similar people, you and Enzo? He was a used car dealer. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Well, look, Bernie, let's, can, we take, can we wind the clock back now? Um, what drew you to motorsport in the first place? I'm talking 50 years ago. Well, I was all sort of getting involved in racing. I used to race push bikes and then motorcycles and then turned into cars. So it was it was driving slash riding. It was that yeah, aspect it's of sport. Being competitive, I think. I've always been a little bit competitive. Were As you it, a sportsman in your youth? Did you do other sports? No, I kept away from that. <laughs> no, I didn't. The answer's no. Can I ask you about your two the two Grand Prix that you contested, if that's right, or tried to contest or qualif- tried to qualify for in 58 in the Connaught, uh, Monaco and Silverstone. Um, memories of those two races or, or, or well, qualifying you, sessions? Not the good thing to remember, actually. I mean, those days in Monaco, there were 16 starters and probably 28 people trying to qualify. And m- most of the people were more serious about the racing than I was. So I didn't get the job done. Just that easy. But did you enjoy the adrenaline rush of, of racing back then? No, I think it's, if you're a, a competitive person, no matter what you're competing in or whatever it is, you try and do the best you can. And that's what happened. So was it very frustrating that you didn't qualify for those races? Or was it, are you the sort of guy that just turns the page and... Yeah, exactly. And that's didn't when Didn't affect me at all. And of course, at that time, you were also working with Stuart Lewis Evans. What were you doing for him? I just used to travel with Stuart and try and help him with different things, with it, making sure he was in, got in the good teams. And in the van all? Exactly. Were you sort of doing sponsorship deals for him or was it less Not so much, not that? with Stuart. Yeah, those days, I don't think we knew about sponsors. There wasn't much on the cars, was there? Let's say it didn't used to happen. Few tire sponsors, few oil sponsors. That was it, wasn't it? Well, you'd yeah, maybe. I mean, when I was racing a car, I had a sponsorship with Shell. I saw there was a hundred of us. um, Sorry, ten of us that had a sponsorship. And was that just free fuel and lubes, or was it actually did money change hands? Yeah, money changed hands. Mm. Yeah, those days, Sterling Moss and I had contracts with these people. The Moroccan Grand Prix of 58, when Stuart had his accident, was very badly burned and then died a few days later. How did that affect your love of motorsport? What happened? I think these, when things like that happen, I think you want to switch off because it's something that's been happening sort of every day, every week, and then suddenly it doesn't happen anymore. So you've, you know, sort of regretfully forget it but was that the first time something like that had happened to someone who would you call Stuart a friend did that yeah. make it different no he's a very close friend yeah. and that didn't make it any different you just in terms of the impact it had on you no I mean there's nothing I could do about it I mean it was very it was terrible the way he was dealt with in the hospital in Casablanca it was all everything was bad up until the day he died did you, were you the person pushing to get him back to England as yeah. quickly as possible? Yeah. Mm. What about the other drivers of the time? Who impressed you and why? Who stood out? Well, I think as there was, wasn't so much publicity, people writing and doing what we're doing, I don't think you could, you'd have to sort of admire somebody and follow somebody to sort of get it really connected. And, and who on that grid in the 50s did you feel you connected with? Well, Stuart, obviously, and mm-hmm. Jochen Rint, obviously, Jochen, mm-hmm. because we were sort of a little bit partners in different things. We used to run a Formula 2 team for Lotus. Well, we'll come on to Jochen, but just in the 50s, was, was, did you have any contact with Fangio or was Sterling Moss a, 
a charm, if that's the right way to put it? I mean, people were much more close and friendly with it, you know, with each other. As you say, people like Fenger, people like that. Gonzalez was a good friend of mine. People that, those sort of people, they don't exist today in the way they used to. Not saying they were better or worse, it was just different. Okay, so you, what happened between 58 and then you getting involved with Jochen? It seems from the outside that you took a step back from the sport. Is that true? I suppose, I mean, I don't forget I was still running a business when all this was going on. So, I mean, this was a hobby. The, the motorcycle business? Well, everything, cars and motorcycles. Okay. So racing was just a hobby. And then how did you come into contact with Jochen Rin? Because I knew very clear, a guy called Roy Salvadori. And then Roy was starting to run Cooper. And then Jochen was there. What, the moment you saw Jochen drive, you realised he was something special? Yeah. But what made him special, Bernie? I mean, what if you like to say what makes... I suppose you've got to say that Lewis is special today. What makes him special? Just bloody quick. <laughs> Simple as that. The ingredients haven't changed, and Jochen was yeah. just bloody quick. Yeah. Okay, but on a personal level... How different was your relationship with him to how it had been with any other drivers, Stuart, or anyone else? Do you know, we just got on very, very well together. Mm. And uh, we used to play gin rummy and, you know, we just got on well. Mm. We are just good friends. Mm. And then when we got the Colin Chapman asked me if we could run this Formula 2 team with Graham Hill and Jochen, that's what we did. So that was your first foray into running a team, team ownership. Was that something that you were keen to do or, or had you actively sought to get involved in running a team? Or Yeah, I intended to do that. Jochen and I were getting, that was our intention, mm. to have a, a Formula One team. Do you think Jochen was looking beyond retirement or did he want to race for his own team? He wasn't looking at that. I mean, it was a case that would have been a year probably after he died. We would have been running a team so I, when I bought Conald that was the intention and so Bernie when can you remember how you felt when Jochen was crowned world champion posthumously was his death at Monza any different to anyone else's because of the relationship you had with him or again was it turn the page I mean it was it certainly was different for sure, you know, because we were very close, so it was different. So, see, those days, everything was different. Like when the accident happened with Colin Chapman there and the, the police in Italy wanted to get a hold of him and arrest him and do all the silly things they do and getting him out of the country to make sure he was safe and then looking after things there with Jochen. So the whole series was, everything was different. Mm. and uh, so you you become much closer with people when there's a bit of tragedy we couldn't have been any closer than we were but you know you sort of felt more so that's when I decided then well we give it a miss for a little while not for a little while but then it was just given a miss and 50 years on when you think of Jochen is there a particular moment a particular image that you think of which puts a smile on your face no, it was millions of things we did together, so to pick one out would be impossible. For people listening who didn't know Jochen Rint, was he funny? Is there anything, just, can you just give us any anecdote or anything that just sums up Jochen's character? Because all the pictures I've seen of him are him, he, he looked like he had a really cheeky grin. I don't know if that's fair or not, but was he quite cheeky? He was really, I suppose, <clears throat> I'm reflecting a bit of a practical joker. Oh, God. <laughs> The first of the practical jokers. What kind of stuff did he do? Well, I didn't ski or do anything in those days. And he was a very good skier. And he took me in a helicopter, landed very high up in, very high up in a mountain for skiing, and sort of 
explain to me how to get out, complete with the skis, and just disappeared. The helicopter just went, and I'm standing there with skis, which I didn't know what to do with, in a lot of snow, in not very good weather. And off went the helicopter with no, I'll be back soon or whatever. So, so that was the sort of thing he would get What happened to. next? You've got to tell us no, the end No, he came of back, obviously. Oh, he collected <laughs> But I mean, they're the sort of things that... Were you worried at one point? Not really. <laughs> Nothing much to worry about. Yeah. Um, wow. He sounds a very special guy. Um, but Bernie, was it... And his... we used to... I mean, a good example with him. Colin Chapman had designed a car that Jochen wasn't particularly excited about. So they had a big argument. And what used to happen, we went to a race. They both Colin and him would be in the same hotel, but they wouldn't be talking to each other. So Colin would call me, I'd be in England, Colin would call me and say something, say to York and then York, I'd tell York and then York say, so he would tell him this. And this used to go on all the time. And that's how things happened or didn't happen. And that, that was more, he was very straightforward with things. And if he didn't like things, he'd tell you straightforward, you know. Was his accident at Monza the first time that you sort of woke up and thought, we need to do something about safety? Not really. I don't know when that happened. I mean, Sid Watkins was the guy who used to look after things for us. We sat down one day and we were talking about things in general and said, we ought to get something done about this. It's all a little bit crazy. And then I said, well... Like what? He said, it would be nice to have some facilities at a race meeting. So I got really stuck into that. But what with triggered it. that first conversation with Sid? Because it was 1978, right, that, that Sid first sort of acted on what you'd asked of him. I don't remember when it was. I don't remember the date. Might have been, I, I, don't, I don't know whether it was Ronnie Peterson when he... Yeah, at, died at, at Monza in 78 yeah, yeah. Whether, whether that started I don't remember but did you know Sid socially or no okay, I so. just knew him well because he used to be in all the races yeah I got him into that in the first place with somebody from ooh, the RAC I think suggested he would be a good person to have with us so I contacted him and got him on board huge progress made in safety but why is it that you and Sid got on so well, do you think? I have no or idea. worked so well together, perhaps? I don't know. No idea. Well, we, I suppose in the end, we both wanted something to happen. And so we had to try and make it. And he, Sid knew that he could rely on me, that if we come up with an idea, one way or another, I'd make it work. Mm-hmm. He started the air ambulance thing that runs now in London, we started that together. Wow. A couple of other drivers I wanted to ask you about. First of all, Nicky Lauda. Tragically, we lost Nicky earlier this year. How do you remember him? I think when somebody is like those type of people, like, like Nicky, for example, easy to get on with, somebody you could rely on, somebody you could trust, and somebody that wasn't trying to do evil things behind your back, and trying to be helpful always. They don't sort of come that often. So you remember them for all those things. How quick was he? He was quick. Probably not the quickest every day. But when he had to be quick, he was quick. How difficult was it to lure him away from Ferrari? Or it seems that he'd fallen out with Ferrari. So was he ripe for the picking? We met... In Monza, outside the circuit. And he was a little upset. I mean, we were good friends before that. And he was a bit upset with Ferrari in general. And that's when I said he should join us at Brabham. He was the first guy to get a million-dollar contract. That that wasn't what made him leave Ferrari. But it helped a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and Bernie, were you... How much did it pain you to pay drivers? Because they're all doing something that they probably do for free because they love it. So to write out a cheque to Nicky Lauda for a million dollars to drive your car, which in 78, we'll we'll come on to the fan car in a minute, but how painful was that for you? It wasn't painful at all because he had a sponsor at the time that was happy to keep him happy in in a team that they thought 
won't be winning the race, called Parmalet. And so we took Parmalet with Nicky. Oh, okay, so actually... <laughs> it was. You didn't have to write the cheque out. <laughs> was, we still had to write the cheque because... But it was easier. That's wonderful. And then when he... When Nicky just said, I've had enough... When Nicky said that? Yeah, when Nicky said, I've had enough, I, I want to retire. It was in Canada. Mm. What was your reaction? Well, we then had a Ford engine, TFP engine, because Nicky had suffered with this with another engine. And uh, Nelson was in the other car and was obviously quicker than Nicky. And, with it, and I think Nicky was probably a bit surprised with that. And surprised the car how quick the car was so he decided it so when he came to me he said i'm gonna we were starting to talk about contracts he said well i'm gonna stop at the end of the year i said why he said well i'm just had enough i'm gonna stop so i said well if you're gonna stop you better stop now because the last thing you should be doing is thinking of stopping then again today continuing maybe have an accident and then be in big trouble for the rest of your life thinking I should have stopped before and you didn't. So I said, the best thing you can do is go now. He said, what do you mean go now? I said, like now. I said, I'll continue. I'll pay you to the end of the year. Exactly right. Our contract's the same. But you go. And he went. Tell me how extraordinary. So it's your idea. Your idea for him to... Yeah. It wasn't my idea that he should leave. It was his idea that he was going to stop. It was my idea he should stop then yeah. and not, you know, hang around. If you're not, 100%. I never had anybody else to drive. So if you're not a hundred percent committed, may as well not do it. Well, no, it would be bad. Imagine he had a continued, had an accident, couldn't walk anymore because of the accident, for example, and thinking to himself, "I was going to stop," and didn't. Who was the fastest driver that ever drove for you at Brabham? Oof. They're all much of a muchness, really, I think. I wouldn't say one of them was the quickest. Okay, Bernie, you're coming back. Brabham is coming back to Formula One. Age isn't a barrier. You're allowed one of the drivers that drove for you. Nelson PK. Why Nelson? We got on well together. He was quick and... Uh, Liked by the team, everybody liked. He was a good. He is and was a good guy. Another practical joker as well, right? Yes, exactly right. There seems to be a theme here. The drivers that get on with mystery are all practical jokers, no? I mean, obviously, would I have said Nicky, or why didn't I say Nicky? Um, I think perhaps Nelson was perhaps a little easier to handle the Nicky in as far as Nicky knew what he wanted and couldn't be persuaded that he was wrong. Whereas with Nelson, maybe you could talk to him. And do you think someone like Reutemann, do you feel you got the full potential out of Carlos Reutemann? I don't think anybody did. I think Carlos was much more talented than was seen. I mean, he would give you a very good example with him. If he went over, in those days there wasn't curbs, but if he damaged a wheel even, he'd be upset. If he'd really upset, he'd done anything that would damage the car. He was very careful and caring. Isn't that music to your ears as a team boss, though? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Keeps it cheap. Yeah. But he was very quick. Yeah, he was quick. Mm -hmm. Again, probably much quicker than we ever saw. Another driver, Senna. Ayrton Senna. First of all, can you describe your relationship with him? Well, we were just friends, that's all. I went to stay with him in his house in Brazil and things like that. We were good friends. Were you instrumental in getting him into McLaren in 88, for example, or Williams in 94? Perhaps a little bit more with Williams. Brabham maybe was the first time he'd Set in the Formula One car. When he tested for you? In Rickard. At Rickard, yeah. yeah. Or was it Williams, actually? Maybe he did a run for Frank at Donington, did he? But they were at the same, roughly the same time, certainly. I don't remember. Were you at that Rickard test when Ayrton drove the Brabham? Yes. Yeah. 
Can you remember the impact he made on you? Yeah, I mean, team? he was... You could see then what he was going to become. He took the car out just to run to see how it all was. And I think it was Charlie writing that said to me, Christ, you know, we should have done something with the the front dampers or something, something like that, whatever it was, just like that. So I said, well, what, what effect that will have? He said, well, he, he won't know anyway. He won't notice it, but uh, yeah. And he hasn't did another lap, came in and stopped, spoke to Charlie and told Charlie what was wrong with the car. So Amazing, yeah. So yeah. a useful sort of a guy. And we never took him because at the time, I think it was, that was the time we had Nelson, and Nelson wasn't too happy with him. Called him a taxi driver. There was always a bit of an edge between those two yeah, Brazilians, yeah. wasn't there? And I, this, this, the difference is Nelson had spoken to our sponsor at the time and said we shouldn't have him because it would be nothing but trouble in the team, and he's not quick anyway. So the sponsor said we shouldn't have two Brazilians together, really. It'd be wrong. So that's what happened. So we didn't take him. Did that annoy you that PK had gone behind your back effectively? No, um, I suppose not really, because we didn't know how good Ayrton was. We knew he was bright, but we didn't know how bright and how good. So I thought it'd be good to have two Brazilian drivers. That wouldn't have been an issue for Brabham? From no, a, not at all. Oh, okay. For me, it would have been not, not one bit. What do you think Senna did for Formula One as a whole? in terms of his charisma, his speed? Do you feel he sort of lifted the sport in any way? Well, I think what happened, he lifted the sport more after his accident than before. Before, I mean, he was one of the top drivers, but not in the way afterwards, because he had a big, big following in Japan, which was quite surprising. And it was because of that, and he's following more or less everywhere, I suppose. He's just a nice person. Did you get dragged into the controversy after Suzuka 89 and then Suzuka 90 as well when Ayrton and with, Alain Prost were... Pross. Yeah. yeah. Did you get dragged into that controversy? Did you... Very much so. Yeah. What's, looking Jean back Marie. now, what, who's right, who's wrong? Do you have a, any thoughts? I think with all these things, you make a reason for somebody being right or wrong that you sort of like more than the other person. So you make excuse. You don't really look at it, standing back and seeing what actually happened. Do you think Ayrton's intensity might have occasionally led him down the wrong path in that he would have such a belief and such an intense belief that he was right that sometimes... Well, I think he thought he couldn't be wrong. Yeah. Not that he was right. That he just couldn't... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's 25 years since his accident at Imola, which you, you, you mentioned. When you look back at that weekend, what emotions are triggered in you now? What's the overriding thought? Well, it was all, for me, very... It was a bad weekend, obviously. But um, I'd been into the control tower when, obviously, he, he was missing, hadn't come round. And I spoke to Sid Watkins, who was at the accident, and I said to Sid, what's actually happened? And he said, his head. I thought he said, he's dead. We're on a walkie-talkie. So I walked out of the control tower, and his brother came to me, and I said, I'm sorry. I said, you know, he's dead. And obviously his brother was upset, like everyone was upset. And I disappeared from the circuit and I think after that at the funeral I never went my ex-wife was very close to him went to the funeral actually with the mayor of Sao Paulo at the time and I stayed out in the hotel looking on television what was going on at the funeral I never went to the funeral because I thought the family thought I was being callous when I told his brother he was dead when he wasn't now whether he was or whether he wasn't at the time I don't know got a sinking feeling he might have been dead anyway clinically dead you know, sort of thing 
So you travelled to Brazil, yep. but didn't actually attend. No. Do you regret now that you didn't attend the funeral? No. No, no, I don't go to funerals. Would I have gone to the... I intended to go to the funeral. But um, no, I don't. So you think Ayrton Senna's death brought Formula One to the attention of people who might not have been Formula One fans before. Is that why you say he Absolutely. did more? So was there a spike in interest, do you think, immediately yeah, after Yeah, I mean, that? because it was really probably the first time that generally news worldwide had got out about this, which was quite surprising that, you know, somebody got killed the same weekend and nobody mentioned it. And so what... The aftermath of Senna's accident, obviously there were safety improvements were made, but in the immediate aftermath, Williams were left without a lead driver. Can you describe what happened next? Because Nigel Mansell was racing in IndyCar at the time. What happened next? You know, it was more for Williams than for me. Obviously, I, I wanted to make sure we had another... There wasn't going to be another Senna. Let's see what we can do. So how quickly did... Tell us about the dealing with Nigel, because obviously he had a contract with Newman Haas and he was racing in America. And which was the first race? Was it the French Grand Prix, the first race that Nigel came over for? But how, how difficult was it to get him in the car? Well, for him personally, it was never a problem. It was a case with the people that we had to convince they should let him go was the problem. But it wasn't a problem. It was a, it was a financial problem. That's all. So we'd come up with what was necessary and made it all happen. Yeah. Okay. So that's that era. Um, final driver really I wanted to talk to you about from then is, is Michael Schumacher. You always seem to get on very well with Michael. Backgammon. Was yeah. he a regular backgammon? Yeah partner rival no he wasn't a rival because you could beat him or <laughs> he was just fun to play with <laughs> but were you tight with michael is, is michael a friend and and was he one of the drivers that you've been closer to yeah yeah another super talented guy and a nice person what did you admire about him in a racing car i think that the way he sort of looked at life in general that was something perhaps a little different those days. I don't think he... I, I really don't know I mean, whether or not he was that interested in the glory or just interested in racing and winning. He certainly seems... He was certainly well paid, <laughs> wasn't he? It was sort of... If Nicky got not, the first million dollar contract yeah. in, uh, with you at Brabham, Michael, I remember... Everyone sort of aghast at the amount he was being paid by Ferrari. Is that how involved were you in getting him to Ferrari? I don't know. I used to get involved in almost everything. I don't know in details exactly what I had to do. Bernie, that's a fascinating thing. In that, there was a was there a period of time when it was all a chess game to you, and you were placing drivers in teams and even technical people in teams. Did you ever get involved to that level? No, I think it was a case of sometimes the teams wouldn't know how to approach someone. So if I got a little bit involved with, because I knew the team very well, and I knew the people involved that they wanted, it was easier for me to discuss someone than it is for the person to discuss himself with the team. So that's what used to happen. And by the mid-90s, were we at a point where Ferrari needed to win again? You've already told us that Ferrari have been integral to the growth of Formula One and the importance. Yeah. So were you sitting there in the mid-90s going, what, I've got to do something to help this team yeah. win. They hadn't won the title since Jody Schechter in 79. And you saw Michael as, an, as the missing piece almost. I mean, there was a lot of missing pieces at Ferrari then. And that's at the time when I managed to convince Jean Todd to go to Ferrari because they needed someone to lead the team that in my opinion wasn't Italian so I had a little bit of a problem at the time convincing the people above Ferrari 
that they ought to get someone. Why was it important to have a non-Italian running that team? Because I think with the Italians, you've got a lot of people in charge and nobody in charge. And I think in the case of Jean Todd, <laughs> they've been successful in doing other things with his rally and the... And he, he, I thought, he's the sort of guy that can do this, <coughs> which he did. And he became very, very close with Michael. And between them, I suppose, I, in fact, I asked Michael once, who's running Ferrari now? He said, I am. And that was about the truth. And Jean was clever enough to realize how important he was and let him get on with it. And did you, as the big boss, get frustrated that in, well, 96, the car wasn't any good, but then in 97, they get to the last race and then Villeneuve pips them. 98, it goes down to the last race. Mika Hakkinen beats them. 99, Michael breaks his leg at Silverstone. I know that there was a lot of frustration within Ferrari at the time. Was there a little bit of frustration from you as well or, or not really? Yeah, but you, you don't like to see these things. You don't want them to happen. Really and truly, I've always said the right thing to do is the race should be run the last corner of the last lap of the race. And that's what, I mean, people said this last race we had in Brazil, it was fantastic. It wasn't a good race, actually. But the last 15 minutes was fantastic because no one knew what was going on. No one knew who could win. or, And that's what people want. So have you always been someone who like sees a race as a, a, a chess match. You can have a brilliant Grand Prix that has maybe only one overtaking manoeuvre in it at the front, or do you need lots of overtaking to make a good race? No. I mean, what you really need is a wet race. Hmm. If it could rain every race, it'd be great. Do you, do you remember all the talk about sprinkler systems? Exactly. back in the <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Bring it on. A little bit cranky, but probably would have worked. Yeah. Now, Bernie, we mentioned earlier, we talked a little bit about Brabham already, but I just wanted to, a couple of specific questions about it. Why did you buy Brabham in 72, 1972? Well, I decided I was going to retire from business and travel a little bit. And Brabham was for sale. Well, at least I thought it would, could, be, could be bought, even if it wasn't for sale. So that's what happened. So I decided and tried to buy it. So you could indulge a bit of travel with a bit of sport? I didn't know quite what I was going to do. I mean, I was obviously like racing and that's what I would have followed racing a bit more. Maybe not as close as I got to with Brabham, obviously. Did you already have your eyes on running the sport? No. No, 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 that was an accident. You weren't thinking, hang on, for not me? Not at all. Okay. I'd, I need to own a team to get the teams together and then... No. no. I didn't know and didn't care. Nothing, you know. It wasn't until I got involved a little bit, had a meeting with the teams, and one or two things took place, which I got a little bit control of. And people said, well, would I continue doing this thing and running things for them? How quickly did that happen? So you buy Brabham in 72. How quickly did the other teams say... Bernie, please help us. See, I see. I was quite quick, I think. They never had another used car dealer. Enzo? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you and Enzo, Ferrari. Pity didn't speak good English. Yeah. And he'd have been running things. But it really was a happy coincidence. It wasn't yeah. you Absolutely. plotting. Absolutely. So what was top of the job list when... I think there was two other guys that were doing bits and pieces badly. And that's why... If somebody looked as if they could do it better, that's what happened. And was the moment that running the sport became more important than running a team, was there one moment where you thought, this is what I want to do? And I'm thinking of Anderstorp 78. With the fan car. With the fan car. Because you knew going into that race how blindingly quick it was going to be. And yet you volunteered to withdraw that car afterwards. Why? Because uh, Colin Chapman said to me, what's going to happen? We're, we're all going to have to build this sort of car. going to cost us quite a bit of money to do it. And we'd be back to where we are now. So it's really not a big advantage. You're going to win a couple of races before we get together. Because those days, 
it would have taken probably two or three months for somebody to change their car. Nicky said once that he would have won the championship in 78. Yeah. So you yeah, gave Nicky up a championship. Nicky wasn't happy. Gordon wasn't happy. In fact, nobody was happy that I would throw the car because we, that's what would have happened. We would have won the championship easy. And it was more important to you to keep unity among the teams yep. than it was to win the 78 Absolutely. Do tell me, <laughs> the discussion with Gordon Murray, who'd been sweating blood to create this amazing car, <laughs> how did you explain your thoughts to Gordon? Why is just the facts that that's what would have happened? I said to him, you know, maybe we didn't know we was going to win the championship then that easy. Um, I said, well, maybe everything would go well and maybe they won't. In the meantime, we've upset everything and may not have succeeded in what we wanted to do. Was Gordon Murray the best designer of that era? Would you have placed him above the Chapmans and the... I think Gordon was sort of a bit like Colin. You know, he's prepared to hang it out and do things that others maybe wouldn't have done. And partly because you gave him the free reign to do that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he must have, I'm guessing, did he come to you and say, Bernie, I've got this amazing idea of a fan. It's going to work like this. Can I do it? And you must have obviously said yes, whereas yeah. other people may have said no because of exactly. the cost. Or, yeah. I supported Gordon completely. Mm. If he come up with ideas... I'd support them. How much of a racer were you back then? In the Brabham days? Yeah. You mean? Yeah. Well, the same as I am now, I suppose. But if you didn't win a race that perhaps you could have done, did it pain you or were you just, did you just no. move? No. I mean, we were, I remember one race, we'd sold a car to someone, which we never normally had done. <clears throat> and at Watkins Glen, we were first, second, and the customer car was third. And then sort of halfway through the race, I left. So. <laughs> what? Why? Just to Well, get... I couldn't do it anymore. I wasn't driving the car. So the people that were driving the car, were doing the, the team were there looking after. it. Today, I mean, it's a little bit different. I mean, nobody gave orders to the team and things like that or to the driver. So what can you do? You sit there and hope doesn't stop but just the satisfaction of a job well done as the cars cross the line yeah i hadn't crossed the line when i left no i know you wouldn't want to stay and watch them and no no i knew when i got to the airport what had happened we'd won the race i was happy and who who would phone with the news was there sort of a, a particular system i think you... i must have phoned somebody yeah probably wouldn't have bothered to phone me because they probably thought you know i wouldn't be that excited anyway well, so Bernie, you, you go from the sort of the different eras of Bernie Ecclestone's Formula One career, but you go from, you, you sell Brabham in, what is it, 88 to Joachim Latif? Was it 88? Yeah. yeah. And then obviously things change very quickly in terms of the sport changes very quickly. I wanted to ask you. I didn't sell to, I sold to Alfa Romeo. You sold Brabham to Alfa Romeo? Oh, You've just kicked me under the table. <laughs> Did you? And then it was sold to Mr. Luti by Alfa Romeo. I did the deal for them. Yeah, it's funny. They, they're a sort of constant touchpad through your career, aren't they, in terms of engines in the 70s and then, of course, the deal to sell to them. What do you mean with... With Alfa. With Alfa. Mm. Yeah, when, when Kitty was there, we... Mm. It's another guy we got on very well. Mm. For good reason, he didn't speak any English, and I didn't speak Italian. So we got on like a house on fire. <coughs> another person you got on well with, at least from a business point of view, Max Mosley. Yeah. What was the secret of your success as a partnership? Um, well, we trusted each other completely. And I suppose we relied in, on each other doing what we were doing. I mean, Max would actually, Max would maybe hold me back from doing things sometimes that I was a little bit too early on in doing. And he'd slow me down a little bit. I've got a lot to be thankful for, for Max. Apart from being a super guy, he was a guy that would steer me, if necessary, in the right directions. Did your different backgrounds ever prove an issue at all in your relationships not at all 
Were you kind of good cop, bad cop? Is that fair? No, no, not really. We would very together. Uh, we'd never have an argument, you know, with people as if I didn't side in with him or vice versa. Mm. We had the same ideas. He was a, Max was a racer. Or well, so were you. Yeah. So. Great combo. Um, Bernie, what he was... He still is. Max, he still thinks that way. He should have been the Prime Minister, actually. He'd have been a good Prime Minister. Did you ever encourage him to... Yeah, and I spoke to Mrs Thatcher about this. I said, you should take him on board. And... What did Mrs Thatcher say to that? Well, she couldn't do much at the time. Because of Max's father and history, or...? Well, I'd, we'd got over all that. Mm. I'd spoken to a lot of people about that. Nobody seemed to care. Mm. I don't think that was a problem. Bernie, what was your management style when you were running Formula One? A lot of people have said it's divide and conquer. Would you agree with that? Not really. It was a case of trying to get everyone to sing from the same hymn sheet, you know, to, to agree that maybe these ideas wasn't that cranky anyway. Let's give it a go. You can't suddenly, what people have said to me about this divide and conquer, because if you do that, all you've got is complete chaos and you wouldn't be able to achieve anything then. Do you think you were a confrontational boss? Did you enjoy the confrontation of taking on someone and anyone who disagreed with you or... I don't mind a bit of competition, but no, I, I don't think that ever came into it. I tried to, you know, if I had ideas, I'd try to make sure that we put them through. Did your desire to make money ever come ahead of what was right for the sport? No. But any money that was made uh, for myself or the company or for the teams was done because we were doing the right thing. It was never the intention. If I was dealing with promoters, I'd always try to do the best deal I could. But it would be with the right people and good reasons for why we wanted to be with them. And of course, in the mid-90s, with your digital TV effort, do you feel that that didn't work because you were ahead of your time? Probably, yes. With the eight channels we had, people didn't make it work. They really, the people that bought it from us, the French, I think, and the Germans, they really didn't believe it. They bought it, but didn't believe it. So didn't get behind it. Whereas do you think if you'd, been, if you'd introduced that 10 years later, may the public been, may have been more accepting of it? People are still talking about it today. Be able to buy a channel for onboard camera or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Same sort of thing. Bernie, just a few more things. Um, money. When did you make your first million? As strange as it may sound to you, I never bothered about making money. I made money because of things I would, had done or was doing. It was never in my intention to set out to do something to make money. Do you know when that first million came along? Or No, I don't. Honestly, I don't know. No. Some people might say, oh, it was 1963... Great train robbery. <laughs> wasn't enough money on that train to make the millions. <laughs> two, and a half, two and a half mil, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Was it two and a half mil? I think that's what they say, wasn't it? The, not enough money. So those days, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. It was good publicity. For, for you, yeah. yeah. Um, Forbes magazine says you're worth 4.2 billion. Is that accurate? 4.2 billion what? Pounds. Ah, pounds. I don't know how they know. They take the money out of the bank and count it, or what? I don't know. People speculate on these things, don't they? Is it accurate, or...? Is it accurate? Yeah. I don't know. I've never bothered to check. The only concern I have at the moment is that the money doesn't run out before I die. <laughs> Are you spending quite quickly or not? <laughs> no, maybe there wasn't isn't as much as you think. Yeah. Bernie, what other sports are you interested in? Tennis. I like to follow I follow tennis. Did you ever play? No. Is football something? Because, of course, you were a part owner of QPR for a while, Queen's Park Rangers. 
Unfortunately, I was the owner, basically, or the biggest shareholder. Um, didn't interest me. As long as I owned the, the team, I never went to many games. Why did you get involved? By accident. Complete accident. Because Flavio Briatore said to me one day, there's a pizza restaurant, I think it was, that's for sale in London. I said, yeah. And he said, do you know anything about it? I said, I don't know. What's the name of it? And he said, QPR. I said, well, I've never heard of QPR as a pizza restaurant or anything. I said, let me find out. So, which I did. I said to him, well, it's not exactly a pizza restaurant. So he said to me, well, do you think any interest in buying it because it's for sale? And I, and, and I've subsequently found out all, all about that it is a football club. And that's what happened. So I thought it sounded a good idea. So we jumped in. Didn't go to any games, but did you enjoy the business side of it? No. Any parallels with running a Formula One no. team? No, no. There's just quite a lot of no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So quite relieved to get rid of it in the end. Yeah, we escaped intact without losing any money, which was a bit of a feat. Yeah. Did um, we in Flavio and said, why don't we get involved? I've got a guy that I think would help marketing the team. It's the guy that's now running or started Formula E, Alexandra Gag. So we put Alexandra on board with us to come up with some ideas and didn't come up with many of those days. Mm. Subsequently, he has done very well, but he didn't do very well for us in football. No. Any other sports? I Eddie Jordan told me once that you had a few nags in horses in training or greyhounds. Horses. Yeah. Yeah. Any ho You've got horses in training? Race horses? Not anymore. Not any okay. So it's tennis. It's a, another thing like football for me. I think we had a, I think I must have had close on 10 horses. And I went, I think, to maybe three races. Did they win? But yeah, I had Mr. Frank Editore rode for us and won a couple of races. Yeah, we, we did average. Did you get quite a buzz out of owning a horse, winning no. with it? Frankie riding for you? No. Not, no. Did you? I was <laughs> happy to have Frankie with us. Yeah. Keen on the betting side? Um, yeah, I mean... You, People, I don't know whether people do bet on their own horses. They think they know, but they never do. Mm. When you look back at it all, Bernie, the biggest thing you got right in your career? The biggest thing that I got right? I probably get in Formula One on television in the way that which was a bit of a battle because it was against all the television broadcasters. So I was very happy that not only did we manage to succeed, but it worked. Anything you regret? What I regret? Probably something I want to forget. And I can't remember what it was. <laughs> what about the 2005 US Grand Prix at Indianapolis? The problems with Michelin and only a six-car race and well, oh, crikey! When you when you look back at that, anything you'd have done differently, or anything that particularly frustrates you even now when you think back to that weekend? Yeah, it was Max's decision, which I thought was the wrong decision to make. Max's to to just go ahead. No, not to. I mean, the way the whole thing was conducted. I thought was a little bit wrong. I mean, Max and I never argued about things. But in this case, I said, well, it, it could be another way. You know? Don't need to do that. And Max was completely right about people know where they're going to race and know what tyres they should be on and whatever. So it was really one of those where Max is very good, gets stuck into something which he thinks is right and doesn't back off. But do you regret not putting a chicane in that would have allowed the Michelin runners to, to race? Or? Yeah, I'm just saying that there was a million things we could have done. Mm. Not exactly a million, but mm. quite a lot. Mm. Yeah, It was a stressful moment on the grid. Did you believe then, did you know then on the grid 
that the Michelin runners were going to pull off after the parade lap? Or were you still hoping, even then, that the race would go ahead? It was me that suggested that's what they should do. To, to pull over, to pull, pull, pull into the pit? Yeah. Okay. Um, most stressful time of your career? I think I've had hundreds. <laughs> I've had lots of things happen which have been stressful at the time. Nothing in particular to say, well, this was the most stressful. Now, it's been 20 years since you had your heart up. Can you remember what symptoms you had prior to that? I was walking and I had a pain in the chest. Went home and said to my ex at the time, I'm going to just lay down for a bit, which he knew I wouldn't do in the afternoons, something like that. Called the doctor and he said I had to have a test. And that's what happened, I had a test and then eventually... They thought I'd bypass. And how's the ticker now? Has it has it still still working? <laughs> but you feel it, a, you look in rude health. I have a checkup. I should more often, but I get put in the tube and they have a look and see what's going on and isn't. And was it concern over the ticker that prompted you to sell in the first place? To sell what? The sport. Oh, I didn't sell. I gave bloody shares to my ex, who put everything in a trust, and the trust decided that Formula One wasn't the right thing for them as a trustees, and they were the ones that sold. But but it was it was a it was the health scare that prompted all that early on. Yeah, yeah, because I was going to die for sure, and I was told no discussion about it. Wife was telling you, or no? Um, and I disappointed a lot of people, huh? Selling or, or no, not dying. Not. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm sure that's not true, um, Bernie. What about a knighthood? Knighthood. Yeah. What do you? Don't particularly a... agree with these things. Okay. I was going to say, is there any? Is, are you disappointed at any level that you haven't been knighted? If you think what you've done to for I motorsport did, for jobs in the UK, I think twenty odd years ago I was given the opportunity and decided not to. Y- you turned a knighthood down. Yeah. Why did you turn it down? Really, because I, I don't think doing things that I've done deserve any acknowledgement from anyone. I mean, all the things I've done, I didn't set off to do something good for the country. If, by chance, it happened, I did do something good for the country. Good. But it wasn't my intention. Mm. Would you like to see Lewis knighted? Lewis Hamilton? Well, there's no reason why he shouldn't be. I mean, he's done a great job for England, for sure. On the other hand, like myself, he never set out to do something good for England. He set out to do something good for what he wanted to do and it was but I mean there are people that lots of occasions where people do try to do things for the country and don't benefit from it financially they benefit perhaps that they have done something good so final question what's your legacy don't have one really you think you, you don't have a legacy I would disappear and be forgotten within a few months, like most people. Nobody remembers something. The world moves on. New people, new things happen. And, I mean, the world is moving so quick now to what it used to, maybe 20 years ago even, that it's easy for people to sort of march on for new things, new ideas. Well, Bernie, on that note, thank you very much for your time. Lovely to chat. Thank you. It takes a brave man to leave Bernie stranded on top of a mountain as Jochen Rint did. But actually, I'm only joking when I say that, because this chat proved to me that Bernie is human. He does have a sense of humour. He does have a sense of perspective. And he's able to laugh at himself, as proven by his description of the symptoms of his heart problem 20 years ago. He's throttling back these days, spending his money and enjoying himself while still coming to a few races each year. And why not? 
Bernie, thanks for your time. It was great to catch up. Well, that's it for another episode. And while the Formula One season may be over, we'll still be back next week with a guest you will not want to miss. I promise you, it's a beauty. As ever, I want to say thanks for your feedback about last week's episode with Rubens Barrichello. The man's a legend and he didn't disappoint in his storytelling, revealing some tremendous anecdotes from his record-breaking career in Formula One. Andrew Milliki got in touch via Twitter to say this. Loved the recent episode with Rubens. The inside stories and the bombshell offer from McLaren were amazing, with the cameo from Ross Braun being the cherry on top. Thanks for getting me through my daily commute. Well, thanks, Andrew. And if you try and tell me that you weren't laughing out loud when Rubens recounted the story of having dinner with Ayrton Senna in Adelaide, I won't believe you. As ever, please keep your feedback coming because we love it and share it. Remember to use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid and you can tweet me at TomClarksonF1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>